Second Kings chapter 20. In our study of Second Kings, we've been learning about covenants and character, God keeping his covenant, Israel, Judah not always keeping their covenant, God's character never changing, Israel's and Judah's character wavering. And in chapter 18 and 19, we studied Hezekiah's radical reforms and then how God miraculously delivered him and the nation of Judah from the Assyrians. But there is more to Hezekiah's reign than just that moment in time, that invasion, even though the more almost never happened. So chapter 20, we begin in verse 1. It says, and in those days was Hezekiah sick unto death. In those days, which means the days we just covered in the Assyrian invasion, so at the same time, or in that general vicinity of time, Hezekiah had a terminal illness. The Bible does not indicate what he had that was going to take his life, but he was sick unto death. Now, because we know the year and not the time of the year when this happens, there is debate on whether it happened before, during, or after God delivered Judah from the Assyrians. But based on the rest of the information we have in this chapter, I believe it's either slightly before or during the invasion. Whenever you think it happened, I think all of us can agree that Hezekiah had a brutal year. He gets a terminal illness, his country gets invaded by a vastly more powerful nation, his personal life invaded by disease. And so before we even begin to look at this, has 2023 been that kind of a year for you? A brutal year, challenge upon challenge, crises upon crises. Or maybe it's lasted more than just this year. Well, the good news is that the Lord got Hezekiah through this time of his life, which means that he will get you and me through the difficult times in our lives as well. Now, if they've ever gone to the doctor and gotten bad news, I remember the first time I went to the doctor and got bad news. Doctor walked in and started off, she goes, okay, party's over. Immediately, I, my attention was grabbed, it was arrested, and I thought, oh dear God, what has happened to me? It's one thing to get bad news from the doctor, because doctors can make mistakes. It's quite another thing when a prophet of God comes to deliver the bad news. And so it says, the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, came to him and said unto him, thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. First off, we've seen Isaiah interacting with Hezekiah quite a bit. In fact, as we've looked through First and Second Kings, we see that God's prophets invested a lot into the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah, whether they were good or bad kings. They all had the same access to the Lord's prophets. They all had the same access to the Lord. The only difference between the good kings like Hezekiah and the bad kings like Ahab is how they responded to that access. We have been superbly blessed in our day with easy and vast access to God's Word and to godly people. I don't think Paul the Apostle could have just picked up one of these and been like, Timothy, I'm really struggling today, pray. But we can. We have an incredible amount of access and a credible uh, to God's people and to His Word. What are you and I doing with that access? Because if we could look at like a Hezekiah who 
clearly benefited from that access because of how he responded to it, and then a guy like Ahab who clearly did not. Are you taking advantage of the opportunity you have, the access you have to God's Word and God's people? And are you responding to those things by trusting God more and obeying Him more? Well, Isaiah comes and he says unto him, thus says the Lord, not Dr. So-and-so. This was Dr. Jesus. And he says, set your house in order for you shall die and not live. There is no way to get a second opinion on that. That's as final as it can get. Yet, the announcement of his prognosis does come with a command. Hezekiah, you have work to do before you die. Set your house in order. It means to give instructions, to assign roles or functions, make a decree. The house should be the palace affairs, the royal affairs. You need to set it in in place. Who's going to be king after you? You're going to have to set up a transition plan until the illness takes away your capacity to rule. Isaiah's frankness and shortness here is is pretty heavy. I've had a a few different experiences with doctors over the course of my life, and some of them, they would kind of kind of beat around the truth a little bit, and then others would be, give you some options, and then others were just like no bedside manner at all and just told you things are awful. And if you don't fix it, they're going to get worse, so fix it. What are you going to do to fix it? I'm going to do everything you tell me. Please just don't look at me like that anymore. There's no encouragement here, and frankly, it doesn't even sound like there's even compassion. Just a, this is how it's going to go down, so make sure you finish well. Do it right. Can you imagine what's going through Hezekiah's mind? He's only 38 or 39 years old at this point. His life and his reign uh, would be very short compared to the kings who came before him. And so it does leave me with a few questions when I read this, because the Bible tells us that Hezekiah was the best king that Judah had since David. So God, why would you why would Judah's best king in centuries be one of its shortest-lived kings? Why do that? Why would God allow this either during an invasion or when an invasion's right around the corner? I don't know the answers to those questions. But I do know this. Hezekiah's final command from God is not an easy one because he has no kids to pass the throne to at this point in his life. He has no son. Now, Hebrew tradition holds that Hezekiah didn't have an heir because he was afraid he would have a child who was like his dad, a child that would not walk with the Lord and then undo all the spiritual reforms that he'd brought in. They hold he never married. Now, a 38-year-old single man in that day is unheard of, absolutely unheard of. So, especially for kings who usually took multiple wives via the treaties made with neighboring kingdoms. And so, if that was indeed Hezekiah's issue, that he had never married and therefore had no kids, I can understand a little bit why Isaiah was so short with his words, because Hezekiah doesn't have time left to have a child now. This needs to get Hezekiah moving on a plan to realize that through his fear of having a wicked child, he's created the same problem, no godly heir. You still didn't reach the goal of having a godly heir because you have no heir. 
Now, David did have other children besides the one, the line that Hezekiah came through. That's how Jesus can be the king and yet escape the curse that will come on this line at a certain point. He is descended through David, through Solomon, through Mary, but he's descended through David's other son, Nathan, through Joseph. So David had other kids. There were likely brothers or nephews or cousins that could take the throne and therefore fulfill God's promise to David. But how do you pick which one? And I don't know about you, but have you ever participated in any type of like a inheritance type of a situation with a friend when there's multiple family members involved and things aren't clearly spelled out? It's bad enough when things are clearly spelled out. I remember I, I did a memorial service once and I'm I wasn't family with the individual. I'm just doing the service. And I've got multiple family members talking to me about what I need to tell so-and-so about the inheritance. I'm like, dude, we're here to remember your mom. What is wrong with you? Things are so much easier when I don't try to outthink God. I don't want to have a kid. I've got this fear of having a kid and he's going to grow up and be wicked and he'll be like my dad and he'll mess everything up. So I'm not going to have any kids. Brilliant plan, Hezekiah. Not so brilliant. Maybe he thought he had time. Maybe he thought to himself, you know, things will be different later on. I'll, I'll be ready. Or I hear parents say that sometimes. We're not quite ready to have kids yet. You'll never be ready. We just want to be able to get to a place where we can afford children. You'll never be able to afford kids. <laughs> Seriously. Kids are expensive. Yes and no. Yes and no. You make do. It's what happens. That's what happens. You, you learn to be a parent. And to be a parent means you sacrifice for your kids. And so you go and you say, eh, we're going to cancel Netflix and get more diapers. Things are so much easier when you don't try to outthink God. Now, this news devastated Hezekiah. I mean, he'd had some failures, but he'd also worked hard to bring the nation back to the Lord. He was a good king. But now the nation's in a tight spot politically because of the threat of Assyria. And someone else was going to have the responsibility of leading the nation to the Lord through that time. And this was not at all how he'd expected this to go. And so verse 2, it says, then he turned his face to the wall. I remember doing that as a kid sometimes. Mom and dad would come in, give you the bad news. You're grounded. We, we found out that you haven't been doing your homework. You're grounded. You turn over and just stare at the wall. He was likely in bed from the sickness. And a wall is not a comforting thing. It's lonely, it's silent, it's a dead end. Unless, unless you're looking for solitude with the Lord in prayer, which is what he's doing. He turned his face to the wall and he prayed unto the Lord, saying, I beseech you, O Lord, remember now how I have walked before you in truth and with a perfect heart and have done that which is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept sore. He says, I beseech you, which means, oh, please, or ah, now. The, the word is primarily used as a marker uh, of emphasis, conveying the emotion that's present in your request or in your statement. So the idea of, ah, Lord, it's just there's, there's a lot of emotion here when he prays. I beseech you, oh, Lord, Remember, now should actually say please. Now is not correct there. Remember, please. You know, God doesn't forget. 
But we have numerous examples of God's people reminding Him of things. So, and there's no correction on that, so I'm going to assume that's a good way to pray. And he says, Lord, he's not asking God to remember any promises God made, which is what we saw last time. He's not asking God to remember his love for his people. In fact, Hezekiah seems to ask God to remember how he's lived. Remember how I have walked, conducted my life before you in truth, which means integrity and faithfulness, and with a perfect heart. In other words, something that was intact. I didn't give you part of my heart. I gave you my full heart. And that I have done that which is good, pleasing, joyous, desirable in your sight. Now, when we read that, we might be tempted to think that Hezekiah is saying, God, I've earned better from you. Please change your mind. But we've already discussed that it's not a good way to relate to God by saying, God, do you owe me better? Let alone to somehow believe that God, we deserve better. God resists the proud, the Bible says, but he gives grace to the humble. So that's the way we're to pray. But I don't think Hezekiah is saying, God, I've earned better from you. Please change your mind. He's saying, Lord, please don't forget that despite my failures, I have sought to honor you with my conduct. And you who know all hearts, please remember that my conduct sprang from a heart that is truly dedicated to you. I think he has a reason to pray that because even with David's failures, what was God's testimony? Like what was his conclusion about David? He loves me with all his heart. David loves you with all his heart? Committed adultery and murdered the husband. That's not how I would usually categorize someone who loves God with all their heart. And yet, the Lord who sees all things, as Hezekiah is asking him, remember, act, Lord, in my life, remember these things. Hezekiah did love God with all his heart. He had done what he'd done. Yes, he'd failed sometimes, just like David had. But he did what he did with a, a full heart, an intact heart toward the Lord. And he had done things that did please the Lord. He knew that. Hey, that's a good question. Like, how do I know the things I've done have pleased the Lord? Or if you're doing what he says, right? Like, he knew that there were things that he'd done. He knew that they pleased the Lord. Like, there are times when I've had absolute confidence, when I've even had other people be like, I don't know if this is a good idea, or, or you know, Will, aren't you going to do something different? Are you going to do something about this? No, we're trusting the Lord. That, that I know that it's pleased the Lord. And that's where Hezekiah is at here. He's reaffirming his love and his loyalty to God as well as his submission to God's will. He doesn't say, God, change your mind. He, he says, Lord, would you be merciful? Would you remember? after God heals him, sorry for the spoiler, Hezekiah prays a second prayer. It's recorded in Isaiah chapter 38. Isaiah 38, it's a long prayer. This one's very short. In Isaiah 38, he records another prayer he prayed after he recovered. I'm not going to read the whole prayer, but in verse... 17, he mentions, Behold, for peace I had great bitterness, but you have in love to my soul delivered it from the pit of corruption, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. He's not, his whole heart and this whole thing is not self-righteousness. Like that's very clear here. He knows he's a sinner. He knows God doesn't owe him anything. 
And he also, in verse 20, he says that he prayed in the basis that he believed that even though Isaiah came with that word, that that's not what God wanted to do. He says in verse 20, the Lord was ready to save me. So he believed that God wanted to heal him and was just waiting for Hezekiah to ask. In other words, Hezekiah's basis for this short prayer before God heals him is not because he thought he deserved better. His basis is in a hope in God's goodness and God's mercy, which is the same basis how he prayed for God to deliver them from the Assyrians in chapter 19, remember? He prayed on the basis of God's mercy. You see, his desire was, I want to do more for you, Lord. Things I can't do if I'm dead. If you read the prayer in Isaiah 38, he talks about that. He's like, Lord, I thought I was done. I thought my whole plan, all the things I wanted to do for you, I thought it was done. And the thought of those unfulfilled desires that his life would be cut so short, it broke his heart. And so after he just prays this quick prayer, God, remember me. It says he wept sore. It means Hezekiah wailed with a great weeping. I mean, he is just losing it. He's just crying out to the Lord. Isaiah 38, in his prayer, he says, I prayed all night. So he prayed all night, crying out to the Lord to to heal him all the way into the morning. Didn't sleep at all. But what's interesting is he didn't pray all night because God took that long to answer his prayer. Look at verse 4 of chapter 20 in 2 Kings. Verse 4, and it came to pass Before Isaiah was gone out into the middle court, that's a bad translation, it means middle of the city. It says, before he got out into the middle uh, middle of the city, it says that the word of the Lord came to him saying, turn again and tell Hezekiah, the captain of my people, thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. I love this here because He sends Isaiah back pretty quickly after he prays, and Isaiah, the word from God is, this is what the Lord has to say, the God of David, your father, has heard your prayer. Why does he bring up David, his father? Because he wants Hezekiah to know, I'm the God who hasn't changed. I'm the God who doesn't change. I'm the God who shows mercy and favor to those who love him, just like I've been doing from David all the way down. Now, he says, I've heard your prayer, I've seen your tears. Some critique Hezekiah for the tears. He's being a wimp. But God does not critique his tears. He only brings up that he saw them. It's one thing for God to hear the prayer, please God, you know, please hear me. I hear you. But it's another that God points out, I saw you weeping. I saw you wailing. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 29 through 31, when Jesus is sending out the disciples, he tells them to not worry about enemies, you know, or people mistreating them. And he says in Matthew chapter 10, verse 29, he says, are not two sparrows sold for a, a penny? And one of them shall fall, not, he says, and one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father. I almost always hear people read that this way, and not one of them falls to the ground without your father knowing. That's not what it says. It says, and one of them shall not fall on the ground 
without. The word without is the idea that there's a, a presence is removed. In other words, the Lord is there when even the tiniest little bird dies. And then he says this, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. I saw a baby for the first time today. Not my first baby, <laughs> but a child I had not seen before. Some missionary friends were in town who hadn't seen them in a while. And, and you know, you see that child for the first time and you touching his little fingers and looking at all his little features and stuff. If you've had your own child, you know what it's like. You look down and look at their hair and then their hair changes and sometimes their eye color changes. You know all the little details about them. You know whether they got the innie or the outie and you don't show it off to anybody because you don't want anybody to make fun of them. You know all the little things about them, every detail. And I think here that the Lord says through to his disciples, God doesn't let one of these birds die without being right there beside them. The very hairs of your head are all numbered. He sees, he knows everything intimately. And then Jesus says, do not be afraid. Therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. If the Lord is with each sparrow when they die, and we are of greater value to him than many sparrows, then surely he is with us when we are suffering. Surely he sees your tears. You're not alone. You're of great value to him. And so the word comes, behold, pay attention, Hezekiah, because I'm going to do something wonderful. Behold, verse 5, 2 Kings 20, behold, I will heal you. On the third day shall you go up unto the house of the Lord. Hezekiah's illness must have kept him from getting out of bed at this point because he says you're going to be in bed for three more days, but then you're going to be able to get up and you're going to be so much better that you're going to be able to travel to the temple. I've heard some people say that when God heals, he always heals immediately and completely. That is not in the Bible, nowhere. There's nowhere in the Bible that it says God does that. In fact, Hezekiah's recovery would take a few days which explains to us why Hezekiah continued to pray all night even after he got the news. He had to trust God's word, not an immediate result. Isaiah comes to him and he says, hey, good news, good news, Hezekiah. The Lord's going to heal you. He's seen your tears. He's heard your prayer. He's going to heal you. Great. Three days from now. What? I've got to live, live with this still? Yes. That's not healing. It's funny how we call it divine healing, but we think we're the ones who figure out how it works. And the truth is, Hezekiah would not recover forever. This illness would come back and claim his life in 15 years. Verse 6, and I will add unto your days. Note, he does not say, I'm going to add to your life 15 years, and then you're just going to die of natural causes. That's not what he says. I'm going to add to your days, which means the condition will not change. He's not going to live a natural life. God's just extending him. You're on a timer, Hezekiah. This thing will go into remission for 15 years. 
Interesting thought. Hezekiah is one of the few human beings who knew the exact year that he would die. I mean, people tell you and say, you've got four years or five years or three months or whatever, but if I had, dollar doesn't go very far these days, but if I had a dollar for every time somebody came to me and said, yeah, the doctor said I had three years and it's been 15, I'd have a lot of dollar bills. How would that affect Hezekiah's decisions moving forward? I know it's not going to be this year, going skydiving. Truth, though, is that we're all going to die unless the Lord returns in our lifetime, right? Knowing the year shouldn't have changed anything. We're to live each day with everything we have for the Lord because tomorrow isn't promised to pretty much every human being besides a few like Hezekiah. But that's not all God had to say. He says, Hezekiah, all those worries about your nation's future, I've got that too. And this is why I believe it happened either concurrent with the Assyrian invasion or just before it. He says, and I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Things are looking grim right now, Hezekiah, but I promise to rescue you and your people. There is a sense where Hezekiah's physical illness mirrors the nation's spiritual illness. God had sent prophets proclaiming judgment, but God postponed the judgment when they repented and cried out to Him, right? And the same thing happens here with Hezekiah and his personal illness. He cries out, and God rescues him from it. We see this in other places in the Scripture where God sends a prophet or a messenger and says, this is what's going to happen, and then the people repent and they cry out, and God either postpones it or He doesn't bring judgment. Look at Exodus chapter 32, probably one of the most quick turnarounds that we see. Exodus 32, Israel has had the whole golden calf experience. They are out of order, in disobedience to God, worshiping an idol. And Moses is up at the mountain. He's just finished receiving the law. He's going to bring down to the people what they're going to do so they can be in fellowship with God. And the Lord said to Moses, verse 7, get thee down, for your people, which you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They've made this calf. So get you down. You need to go deal with this. But then verse 9, it says, and the Lord said unto Moses, I've seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Therefore, let me alone, which means get out of my way, that my wrath may wax hot against them, and that I may consume them, and I will make of you a great nation. Interesting, he says, you need to get down, deal with the people. And then the Lord says, you know what? Forget it. Get out of the way. I'm just going to wipe them all out, and we'll start over with you. Funny thing, I think if the Lord came to some believers I've had conversations with, I think they would have been like, go get them, God. Start with me. Let's do this right. Verse 11, and Moses besought the Lord his God and said, Lord, why does your wrath wax hot against your people? You just call them my people. They're not my people. They're your people, Lord. They're your people. I don't want them, Lord. They're yours. No, he just says, Lord, they're your people, which you have brought out forth out of the land of Egypt, not me. You did it with great power and with a mighty hand. He says, why, why are you so angry that you're going to wipe them out? Why should the Egyptians speak and say, well, for mischief is why he brought it. He brought them out here to kill them. So turn from your fierce wrath 
Lord, repent, relent. Don't bring this evil, the word evil, not evil like in the sense of morally wrong, but the, the word used wrath there, the Hebrew word, it, just, it can mean evil, but very often just means calamity. This would be horrible. Lord, turn your fierce wrath. Don't do this. Stop yourself from doing this. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self. You promised. And he said to them, I will multiply your seed as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have spoken of will I give it to your seed, and they shall inherit it forever. And it says, the Lord repented or relented. He stopped himself from bringing this calamity which he thought to do unto his people. This is similar to Hezekiah's situation, one of those moments where it looks like God pronounces judgment, but then he change, seems to change his mind. Now, God already tells us in his word he doesn't change his mind. So how does that work? If God says, I don't change my mind, and then we have a situation like this, Lord, it looks like you change your mind. So what's going on here? The problem is trying to understand the nature of an infinite God as finite beings. In other words, the problem lies with us, not with the Lord. The reason is, in our finiteness, we see mercy and justice as disconnected. We see them as opposites, two things that do not work side by side. We don't see them as interconnected. It's either judgment or it's mercy. It's why frequently people will say things like, well, the God of the Old Testament is a God of judgment, but the God of the New Testament is a God of mercy. I'm like, you're not reading the same Bible I'm reading. There's lots of judgment in the New Testament. There's lots of mercy in the Old Testament. They're side by side, always. They're not disconnected. In fact, mercy is only necessary because justice is coming, right? Like, you don't need mercy if justice isn't coming. If someone comes to you and you say, hey, we've uh, made a decision on your case, and we're going to just let you off with a, with a warning. Please show me mercy. Like, you're never saying that. You're saying, thank you, thank you very much, and trying to get out as soon as possible before they change their mind. Mercy is only necessary because justice is coming. God is just. He can never ignore sin. God is also merciful, and He looks for a reason to not give us what we deserve. So that's why so often you hear the announcement of judgment. Is the announcement insincere? No, it's righteously deserved. But the judgment is often averted or postponed when we turn back to Him and we seek His mercy. He's a God who loves to show mercy. We read about it in Psalm 85 in our Scripture reading. Turn there with me. I just want to look at a couple things. The psalmist is trying to work through this problem. He says, Lord, you've been so good to us, he says in the first part. Like we, we've, we've been horrible, but you've, you've redeemed us. You've rescued us. You've fixed our situations time and time again. Lord, you've done all this. And so the prayer in verse 4 is, turn us, which means restore us, O God of our salvation. Cause your anger towards us to cease. So in other words, he, he talks about all these things God's done in the first three verses, and he says, Lord, we're kind of in that mess again. You're disciplining us. We're, we're experiencing your judgment because we've gone astray. We've done our own thing again. But Lord, you've never been angry with us forever in the past. Is this the end? Will you not revive us again, verse 6, that your people may rejoice in you? 
Look at how he prays. He doesn't say, God, you know, we've been, we've been trying really hard, just messing up a lot. He goes, no, mercy. Show us your mercy, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. And then he says, I'm going to listen to what the Lord, God the Lord's going to speak, because I know what it's going to be. Do you remember Jonah's story? The whole point of Jonah's story is God says, I want you to go and preach a message to the people of Nineveh because I, I want to get through to them. And Jonah's like, I don't want you to get through to them. I want you to wipe them out. I hate them. And so he runs. He runs. I don't know where we've ever gotten this idea that we're more merciful than God or we're nicer than God or we love people more than God. I want you to think about your worst enemy right now, the person that, that really is hard to love. It's not a struggle. It's not a struggle for God to want to bless them and show them mercy. It is for you. It's never for him. He says, I'm going to listen to what God the Lord will speak because he knows what God's going to say. For he will speak peace unto his people and to his saints. But let them not return again to folly. Surely the salvation is near to them that fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. That's our future. That's what I believe. I know that's what God's going to say when we cry out for mercy. Why? Because he says mercy and truth, they, they're met together. They're not separate things. Like somehow we think that if we're going to be nice to somebody, it means we've got to not be truthful. We've got to not actually hold to any standard or have any standard. That's not loving somebody. No, they, they go hand in hand. In the same way that when we speak truth, we need to communicate our love for that individual. Mercy and truth, they meet together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Justice and peace. To us, we, we, that's unfathomable. The idea of justice. Justice means you get what you deserve, dude. We're going to put you away or we're going to deal with you. Peace is a harmonious relationship. How do you have a harmonious relationship with someone you want to see put in chains? But in God, it works. Those two things have kissed. I had a grandmother, and my family was a, a kissing family. And I don't know if it was a cultural thing back then or the fact that we were just Germans and Germans do that. My great-grandmother... She had issues. Kissing her was not a pleasant experience. So, you know, you'd kiss her on the quick peck on the lips, because that's how it happened, just a quick peck, and it was like, man, I need to go take a bath. Like, when you think of two things kissing each other, you don't usually think of it as two people going, you know? It's usually something that people want to do. Any awkwardness that comes from it is because it's new. It's not because it's not desirable. Righteousness and peace are not like two people going, we gotta do this, but we don't want to. In God, they're connected in perfect harmony. Truth shall spring out of the earth and righteousness shall look down from heaven. Yea, the Lord shall give that which is good and her land shall yield her increase. I, truth? Truth is, we deserve trouble. Righteousness, justice, justice means we deserve trouble. And yet, what does he say? 
Those two things will look down, and when they're coupled with mercy, God's going to bless us. That's what I'm trusting God for. I've had people say, you are way too idyllic. You're too much into this grace stuff, Will. It's either that way or none of us are going to heaven. Because if it's righteousness alone, none of us will be righteous. So it has to be this way. So God says, this is what's happening. They cry out for mercy and God's mercy comes alongside His justice and they meet together in a place that brings blessing to us even though we don't deserve it. God doesn't change His mind. There's just multiple facets of things working in an infant way that's very difficult for us to comprehend. And yet you see it consistently throughout the Scriptures from start to finish. Well, God says, I'm going to do this for David's sake, for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. God doesn't show mercy because we deserve it. He does it so that he will be correctly understood. So he won't be misunderstood. He does it because he keeps his promises. He made promises to David and he will keep them. And thus, this record of us reading what appears to be on the surface history, it comes back to the fact that there's an audience that's going to be reading this. Not us. I mean, yes, it's for our benefit, but originally for those exiles in Babylon. And the author says, don't you see? God allowed Hezekiah to become terminally ill because his plan was to heal this godly man as proof to the people that he is merciful when we turn to him. Do you believe that? Because it's true. You see, too often we find ourselves in an awful situation and we just turn to the wall. We wrap ourselves in grief and loneliness, anger, our own pride, and the seeming inevitability. But we don't cry out to the Lord for mercy. Let's not ever do that. Amen? Let's learn the lesson from the days of Hezekiah that the exiles needed to learn. Yes, you're in Babylon, but God hasn't left you. Turn to Him for mercy. Let's trust in the God who loves to show mercy. Over seven, Isaiah now gives instructions to Hezekiah's caregivers, gives the news. Then Isaiah said, take a lump of figs. And they took it and laid it on the boil, and he recovered. Um, the lump of figs is a folk remedy back then. They would clump the figs together into a poultice, and then they'd place them on the skin to relieve inflammation. In this case, it says a boil, which would be an inflamed spot or sores. I imagine they'd probably already tried this, but this time the inflammation does go away and he recovers. Now, again, I have questions. I don't know if God used the poultice to heal him or if it was simply something to stir Hezekiah's faith. I do think, though, this entire encounter defies faith healing teaching, though, because the healing is gradual, and it appears to employ the aid of human remedies, even though God very clearly says He's the source of the healing. Just something to think about. I think it's important we don't ever make divine healing a formulaic thing. God is God, and He does it when and how He wants. Now, Hezekiah, as you can imagine, is still unsure. Unlike some of us who have experienced like an instantaneous healing, 
Or you think it's that moment, you know, the sun is coming through the window at just the right time, and they put the clump of figs on your whatever, and you're like, nothing like that. It's just a, and no change. And so he's still unsure. He says, God, I say, you just told me God said 30 minutes ago, I'm dying. Are you sure this new message is correct? How can I know? And so verse 8, Hezekiah said unto Isaiah, what shall be the sign that the Lord will heal me and that I shall go up into the house of the Lord the third day? Clearly, I can't go up today. I'm not better yet. Some preachers critique Hezekiah for this. Where's your faith, man? But neither Isaiah or the Lord critique Hezekiah for asking this question. Some might say, well, what about Jesus' words in Matthew 16, 4, that an evil generation seeks for a sign, an evil and wicked generation seeks for a sign? Go back and read Matthew 16. I don't have time to do it today, but you need to look and see who Jesus is talking to there, because he's talking to the religious leaders who do not want to obey God no matter what, who would not listen to Jesus' words. Later on, he tells the disciples in the same chapter, beware of the way they do things. Don't have their attitude. Don't get infected with it. I think what Jesus is talking about, prayers that are like, well, God, if you'll write it in the sky, or if you'll appear to me, or if you'll do this, I'll follow you, I'll accept Jesus, or I'll stay with my spouse, or whatever it might be, that's an, a command from God. And you're like, well, I'm not, I'm not going to obey you unless you give me proof that you're there. That's what Jesus is talking about, because you and I shouldn't need any of that to do what God already commands. There's no command to Hezekiah here. I don't think it's wrong to say, Lord, I know what you've promised me in the Scriptures, and I I do trust you, but it's just hard to see it right now. Would you reveal yourself to help my struggling faith, even in just a little way? I don't think there's anything faithless about a prayer like that. I think that's a humble, honest prayer that God will hear. Now, whether he says yes or no to your request, that's up to him, of course. But in this case, the Lord says yes, verse 9. And Isaiah said, this sign shall you have from the Lord that the Lord will do the thing that He has spoken. Shall the shadow go forward 10 degrees or go back 10 degrees? (laughs) At the beginning, this sign shall you have. Literally, it means this sign is for you. Isn't that interesting? The Lord will do this for you, Hezekiah. He'll answer that. It was Hebrews 11, 6. He who comes to Him, you know, without faith it's impossible to please God, for he who comes to Him must believe that He is and He is rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Hezekiah had never doubted God's existence or God's faithfulness when he prayed or even in his grief. His request is one out of a struggling faith, but it is faith. And I love God's graciousness here, how gentle and kind he is to Hezekiah. That's why we trust him with all our heart and lean not on our own understanding, because he is good. Hezekiah's prayer here, I find it to be no different than the father who told Jesus, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. God, we don't usually see this in the Bible, but God gives Hezekiah two options for the miracle. Which one do you want? You want me to turn the dial back 10 degrees or forward 10 degrees? <laughs> and yet, I think within that we see that the Lord is Lord over all. He can do anything. The earliest sundials were often triangular shapes set on the top of a flight of steps, and then time was measured by the number of steps that the shadow fell on. The word degrees here means steps. Shall it go, the shadow go back up 10 steps or forward 10 steps? And Hezekiah's answer makes me laugh. 
He says, it's a light thing for the shadow to go down 10 degrees. Really, it's, 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 it's a light thing for God to fast forward time 10 hours? Hezekiah seemed to think that if God caused the sun now to move forward, that would at least be time moving in the normal direction. So he asked for God to cause some phenomenon to happen that makes it look like time went backwards. That's what I want. Isn't it funny how some of us think? Did God modify the sun or the earth's movement? Or did he just affect the shadow? I don't know the answer to that. Second Chronicles 32:31 tells us that other nations sent delegations to Hezekiah when they heard about the miracle. Now that could just refer to the healing that he experienced, or it could mean that they had experienced some change in the sky too. But I don't know. The answer, to be honest, is not that important to me, because I can believe that if in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, like if I can hold that, then God can move shadows or he can move celestial bodies however he wishes and preserve the integrity of the universe. Either way, it's a miracle. Verse 11, Isaiah the prophet cried. Cried is too strong a word. It just means he called out to the Lord. He prayed. He prayed unto the Lord, and he brought the shadow 10 degrees backward by which it had gone down in the dial that his father had set up, the steps that his father had set up to be a sundial. Hmm. I really wanted to finish him tonight. <laughs> Dangerous words. Verse 12, well, at that time, Baradach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present unto Hezekiah, for he had heard that Hezekiah had been sick. Baradach Baladan was a major political player in the Babylonian region for about a 30-year period around this time. He was the rightful descendant of the previous kings of Babylon before Assyria conquered them, and he actually led a revolt with the Persians and the Elamites against Assyria. They did capture a few cities, but eventually they were crushed, and he had to flee to Persia. Well, he did return to power, ruling for only nine months, though, before the Assyrians chased him out again. This time that he's sending a delegation is during that nine-month period where he's trying to reestablish power. Hezekiah's healing occurred during that short reign, and he's likely looking for allies against the Assyrians. Now, it's going to take time for a delegation to get from Babylon to Jerusalem, which means whenever this healing takes place, by the time they get there, the Assyrians have lost. So he's probably thinking to himself, this guy beat Assyria. We need him on our side. And so he sends a delegation with letters, political communications of some kind, and a gift to celebrate Hezekiah's recovery. And Hezekiah eats it up. He hearkened unto them. They were, they were made some type of agreement. I don't know if they made a treaty, but they, even if the agreement was just to have future talks about an alliance, he's happy with what they're saying. And he decides to give them a tour of the whole palace. He showed them all the house of his precious things. He means all his treasure house. Showed them all the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious ointment. Basically communicating, I've got money for a war. I've got money for a war. And then he says, he showed him all the house of his armor. This was uh, the house of the forest is what this translates to, which was the armory that Solomon had built to outfit the troops. He goes, I've got the munitions for it too. If you want to go to war, we can fight. And it says that there was nothing in his house nor in all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. Now, why would he do that? I mean, Babylon at this point is a ragtag group of tribes. They're not a power. They've repeatedly been whooped by Assyria. In fact, Second Chronicles 32 tells us why he did it. 
This is that after God healed him and wiped out the Assyrian army, instead of being grateful, he became prideful. Perhaps he thought, I've got 15 years. I'm going to live it up. Maybe he thought, I've got 15 years. I'm invincible. I don't know. Whatever he went through, went through his mind, he became spiritually lazy, and pride rose up. And so instead of remaining a wise ruler, he exposed the nation to a, a future enemy. And so when this is all done, verse 14, then came Hezekiah the prophet unto King Hezekiah, and he said unto him, what did these men say? Where did they come from unto you? And Hezekiah said, well, they're from a far country. I mean, we're big time now. We've got people coming from Babylon to check us out. But Isaiah is still concerned. He says, what have they seen in your house? And Hezekiah answered, all the things that are in my house have they seen. There's nothing among my treasures I didn't show them. Hezekiah was a great king, but he looks naive and foolish when he gives this answer. Like it sounds just dumb reading it. He wonder if he said it and he thought, why did I do that? The pride does that to a normally wise person. And this decision leads to God's discipline, verse 16. And Isaiah said unto Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days come that all that's in your house, that which your fathers have laid up in store unto this day, it shall be carried into Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And of your sons that shall issue from you, which you shall beget, shall they take away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. I don't have time to go into the absurdity of the prediction that Isaiah makes here, but if you were back then and somebody told you, yeah, Babylon's going to conquer us, people would be like, that'd be like hearing like the state of New Jersey rose up and conquered the United States. Or Canada. Very unlikely to happen. At this point in time, Babylon was nothing. But God knew that Babylon would eventually become the first world empire many years later under Nebuchadnezzar. And they would remember seeing that wealth in Judah and they were going to come for it. This is why we must never try to allegorize or explain away prophecy that hasn't happened yet. For centuries, pastors and Bible teachers rejected the idea that Israel would be reborn as a nation because the concept was laughable. How is Israel going to become a nation again? They don't exist. And then it happened in 1948. There were so many, well, few, but Bible teachers that were mocked in their time because they taught what the Bible taught. Bad theology about Israel still exists in the church because of centuries of not taking God's predictions plainly. It'd be far better to teach what God says and be thought a fool than to come up with something that makes sense in your time. He mentions eunuchs here. Your sons will be taken away. That's what happened to Daniel and his friends. They were of the line of David, and they were taken off to Babylon to be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So everything Isaiah said happened. God had showed so much mercy to Hezekiah this year, but this time God decides to discipline him. And Hezekiah's response shows that he's not in the great place spiritually because he misses the point. He says, then said Hezekiah to him, well, good is the word of the Lord which you've spoken. This is good news. Not only do I have 15 more years, but my life won't end in defeat at the hands of Assyria. This is good news. There's a little part of me that wonders if Hezekiah, the pressures that he experienced this year kind of cracked him a bit. Sometimes that happens to us. 
our trust in the Lord wavers because we see tragedy or we experience tragedy, and we just kind of, we kind of just start doing it on our own. We turn inward instead of upward. I think that may have happened to him. I don't know for sure. I think he cracked a little bit. Now, Isaiah is clearly confused by Hezekiah's response because he has to explain. He goes, well, is it not good if peace and truth be in my days? Truth there actually means certainty. In other words, if it's certain that we're not going to get wiped out by Assyria, that's good news, right? We've been living in so much uncertainty for so long, Isaiah. At least I know that one generation will be spared. That's good, right? We don't see Isaiah's response to that. Don't know if he responded. But this was not good news. This was the first promise, the first time ever that God said someday Judah will suffer the same judgment as the northern kingdom. What you saw and you were worried about Hezekiah is going to happen. But you're part of the problem now. We will learn from the kings that come after Hezekiah that there is always hope if we repent and walk with the Lord. The current generation that, that we have right now, I hear a lot of people talk about it as a hopeless situation. This generation is not hopeless. I refuse to believe that. It will only become hopeless to try to reach them if we abdicate our responsibility and settle for less than what God wants. And what God wants is to show them mercy just like you and me have experienced. We didn't deserve it any more than they do. Verse 20, we say goodbye to Hezekiah. And the rest of the acts of Hezekiah and all his might, all his achievements, how he made a pool and a conduit and brought water into the city, and we talked about that in chapter 18. Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? And Hezekiah slept with his fathers, and Manasseh, his son, reigned in his place. Manasseh, he does finally have a child. He's born during those extra 15 years of life. And just as Hezekiah was the best king Judah had had since David, this man, Manasseh, will become the worst king Judah has ever had. And we'll learn more about him when we get to the new year, 2024. So let's all stand. You know, as I finished studying this, I was slightly bummed out. And the reason I was slightly bummed out, not because Hezekiah had some great blowout at the end of his life. He didn't have a great blowout at the end of his life. He still walked with the Lord. He still was a good king. But it did kind of grab my attention because I don't want tragedy or difficulty to crack me. And I know if it could happen to Hezekiah, that it can happen to me. So here's my encouragement to you. Don't try to become your own God. Don't try to figure it all out on your own. Understand that there are things sometimes that are happening that we don't comprehend. But we don't have all the information. And when God gives revelation to us of how things are, we don't have to look and have it all make perfect sense if I know exactly what's going on, exactly what God's doing, and exactly how it's working out, and exactly why it makes sense. What I can look at is when he says, these things work in me. And that's where trust comes in. You can lean on your understanding, trust yourself instead. You could do that, but your path will not be straight. In contrast, if we trust in him with all our heart, he'll make our path straight. Amen? Lord, we want to trust you with all our heart. That's our desire. So Lord, are there areas that we've been wrestling with you or just downright turning you out? Or maybe, Lord, we've been cracked a bit by some of the experiences that have come into our lives. 
Lord, teach us to be humble, not to be lazy. Teach us and help us to seek you in these things, not to just look at a blank wall. Lord, that we might not become prideful and trust in ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.